Well, I know uh, this is a, a creating a bit of a distance, and for that I apologize being up and not down amongst you. But we tried on the little uh, lapel mic that goes over the ear, but evidently I'm more like LBJ than, uh, than Kelly is, and the little contraption won't fit around my ear. They don't have an extra, extra large. <laughs> I've been treated uh, these last two days like a royal uh, guest uh, with unbelievable uh, kindness and generosity from Kelly and Robin and Megan. And for that, I'm, I'm deeply appreciative. Uh, you have a, uh, a rare gift in your minister. I don't know how many churches I'm in, in in a year, lots and lots and lots and lots. And in all sorts of conversations with church leaders and ministers and elders across North America. And your minister is a rare jewel. The quality of education that he has, the experience that he brings, his age. I told him yesterday, you're 52, you're young. And comparatively speaking, he is. Um, This is a good situation for Kelly and his family, and especially for you. And I'm I don't know how to express how grateful I am to see this kind. You know how it is when these matchmaking people, the ones that do the matchmaking, oh, you would be perfect with this person, and then they actually get married, and how that makes you feel? Not that I'm the matchmaker in here, but I I do kind of like to do matchmaking, and this is, you know, a a feat accomplished already. But at any rate, those are the kind of feelings that I have about you and and your minister. Yesterday, we spent a couple of uh, meetings um, Friday night and, and Saturday morning, last two days, we spent a couple of, of meetings talking about living in the world that is imagined in Scripture. And <clears throat> on, on Friday night, we opened with looking at some tools that one would want to have in the tool chest. We talked about words, the historical grammatical approach. We looked at some of the contributions from uh, literary studies, especially the difference in genres, different kinds of literature that's found within the Bible. It's a newspaper, right? It's a Bible, right? But there's a different strategy for reading the sports page than there is from the front page, from the comics and etc. And so too with the Bible. It's filled, it's, it's the Bible, but there's apocalyptic literature, there's epistles, there's narrative, and underneath the narrative there's different subgenres and so on, which require different strategies. We talked about that. We talked about living in the world that is envisioned in Scripture, and even yesterday morning came to the point where we introduced the concept of paradigmatic narratives. That is, themes, texts, narratives in Scripture that actually weigh more, that are heavier, and so identified in the pages of Scripture. We're not making this up. We're not going in and saying, you're more important than that cafeteria style. Some places in Scripture are just more important. For example, when Jesus himself was castigating the Pharisees, and he says, you hypocrites, You tithe mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice, faithfulness, mercy. Jesus said that justice, faithfulness, and mercy weighs more than tithing mint, dill, and cumin. Well, that's where we're at now. And this morning, um, I need a volunteer uh, and you will be uh, you will be happy to do this, and the entire congregation will be thrilled for you to do this. I need a volunteer to loan me his or her watch. 
that has large hands, and so I can identify the time and know when it will be to stop. Oh, <laughs> I didn't take much. Now, if I'd gone on and said, I'm going to have to blindfold you, and probably nobody would have stepped forward. And I just, uh, just for clarification, we are supposed to stop at 10.30. Okay, there we go. We're going, to, we're going to do two things in class this morning. The first part is uh, kind of a, a little special treat of sorts, and that is to give you some preparation for what you're going to hear in the sermon. And by doing that, I'm not saying that those who haven't been in the Bible class won't know what in the world's going on, but for those of you who have been in the Bible class, you'll just have, maybe you'll get there quicker. <clears throat> because in, in the sermon is going to be from a parable. And when we talk about genres, there's different strategies of reading. There's, there's strategies of reading or listening to a parable. Now, we all think we know what a parable means. A parable, we've been taught, all of us have been. Canada, the United States, all of us, all Christians have been taught what a parable is. A parable is an earthly story with a <laughs> yeah, how about that? Yeah. A, a parable, we were taught, is not an allegory. Because an allegory has multiple meanings within it, and a parable has one meaning. We were taught that. We were taught that a parable is, comes from the Greek word para, balo, balo, to throw. I throw the ball, balo, para, alongside, to have something go alongside the other. Thus, the earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And we're satisfied with that. But wouldn't, be, wouldn't it be interesting, and we'll take just about ten minutes to do this, wouldn't it be interesting if we opened the pages of Scripture and allowed Scripture to define what a parable is? That's a novel idea. So let's try it on for size. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. One of the most more common definitions in, in Scripture for a parable is as an example story. Luke 18, we could go anywhere there practically, but I'd like for you to look at verse 9. It's just as obvious in verse 1, but it's as obvious in, in verse 9. And this is a, a parable that we actually quoted Friday night or, or Saturday morning. And the parable goes like this. An example story, as we see evidenced here, is a story that serves as an example of some teaching. It's done, not hard, that's just what it is. Luke 18, verse 9. Listen. Luke, the narrator. And he told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Oh no, what's this parable going to mean? He just told us. He told this parable to certain ones who thought that they were righteous but viewed others with contempt. Whatever Jesus is going to say, Luke has just defined the parable for us. This is not hard. And then comes the parable. Two men went down to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not like other people, swindlers, adulterers, the unjust, or like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I pay tithes all, all that I make. But, 
Jesus is teaching still. He says, but the tax collector was standing some distance away, unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven. He was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Then Jesus, I tell you, this man, tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other. For he who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. End of parable. What did that story mean? Luke told us what it meant. He told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Just that simple. It gets more difficult, though, when the Bible defines a parable differently than what we've been taught outside the Bible. Turn in your Bible, please, to Mark chapter 4. I won't labor over this, just to point it out as a surprise and how sometimes Scripture redefines what we think we think. But in Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells a parable. It's the parable of the, of the sower and the soils. And in this parable, which is given to us in verses 1 through 9, Jesus tells the parable about how the sower goes out to sow, and he throws the seed on this kind of soil, and that kind of soil, and that kind of soil, and that kind of soil. End of parable. His disciples and the followers come to him and say, what in the world did that mean? To which Jesus then explains the parable. Now this is almost as good as Luke 18, verses 1 and following. What does the parable mean? Jesus defines it for us. And he begins the definition in verses 13, 14 and following. And get this. He interprets it as an allegory. <laughs> this means this. That means that. This means this. That means that. This means this. That means that. <gasps> he wasn't supposed to do that, but he did. So now, obviously, as being followers of Jesus, we say, well, forget the, the definition that we had from R.C. Trench back in 1885. I'm going with Jesus. So sometimes, according to the way Jesus interprets this parable, a parable is meant to be an allegory. This means this, that means that, all sorts of points, as Jesus does here. This is pretty simple and pedantic. Now, fasten your seatbelt. There's a third way that parables work. And this is where the sermon is going to go this morning. You ready? Sometimes the parable works as a cause of offense. I'm not going to leave Mark 4. We're already there. You've just been given the backdrop. But cast your eyes down to verse 10. Jesus has just told the parable, verses 1 to 9, and now... They want to know what it means. I'm going to write this on the board only because it's in the scripture. It's right before your eyes. But I just want to make sure that you see what you're seeing. Let's write this down as we go. As soon as he was alone after he told that parable, verse 10, his followers along with the twelve. Now that's two different groups. The followers and the twelve. My way of reckoning this is the twelve are those who have been appointed as his apostles. And then the followers are those who are more interested than the crowd. People are gathering around for the, for the teaching and for the miracles. But now there are people that are really following. Not the apostles, but in addition to. 
His followers, along with the twelve, begin asking him about the parables. They didn't know. They're scratching their head. And he said to them, and this is where, make sure your glasses are on so that you're seeing what you're hearing. Because if you didn't have your Bibles, and I read to you what I'm going to read now to you, you would say, that's not in the Bible. But it is. Listen. Verse 11. He says to them, to who? To the twelve and the followers who asked the question. He says to them, to you, to who? To them. To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. They have the mystery. To you, he says, has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside, that's why I drew the circle. The followers in the twelve are inside. But to those who are outside, he says, they have been given everything in parables. We have the outsiders here, and they have the parables. We have the followers in the twelve who are the insiders. We have everybody else, the outsiders. The insiders, the twelve and the followers, get have the mystery. Those outside don't. You all with me? Okay. Next verse. In order that, so that, for this person, for this purpose, in order that, while seeing... They may, who they? Those outside. That seeing, they may see and not perceive. And hearing, they may not hear. I'm taking my time with this just so it'll sink in. Hearing, they may not under, and while hear, they may hear and not understand, lest they return, lest they be forgiven. So not perceive, not understand. Not here, not understand, and that big one, not forgiven. What did he say? He said he's telling the parable so that those outside will not perceive, will not hear, will not understand, will not return, didn't write that down, and will not be forgiven. That's where you say, if you didn't have your Bible, you would say, that's not what it says. But that's what it says. That's what Jesus said. I'm going to pause for a second and just let this sit in. But it won't be a a pause of silence. I'm going to tell you a story while you think about this. You can do two things. You can think about this, be troubled by it, and listen to a story. One time I was teaching a class at uh, Rochester College, and it was a class continuing College of Extended Learning. It was a degree completion program. And we had many people from outside our fellowship and from outside Christianity, really, who were there for the first time. And it was my job to teach kind of a survey of the Bible. And we got to Matthew, and we're in chapter 19. And we're talking about the camel going through the eye of the needle. And in that section, it's some stuff on divorce, and there's some stuff on the rich. And that's where Jesus said... It is harder for a rich man, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to go into heaven. And they were all looking at me like you're looking at me. And I said, did you hear that? Did you hear that? I said, it's easier for a camel, literal camel, to go through the literal eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to go to heaven. And they didn't blink. And I said, what he's saying here, and this, you know, this in the same section with the divorce, I said, divorced people 
and rich people go to hell. Do you hear this? Oh, now they're listening and they're all concerned. I said, that's what he says. That's what he says. The divorced and the rich are going to hell. And then I said, and so Peter said, is this true? And Jesus said, with men, nobody's going to heaven. Nobody's going to heaven. With men, it's impossible. With, but with God, all things are possible. I just had them wallow a little bit. And then they appreciated God's grace. That indeed the divorced and the rich do go to heaven by the grace of God. Impossible with us, but possible with God. Matthew 19. That was a great lesson. I thought, you know, I should get, somebody should write who's who and nominate me for teacher of the year. This was just a brilliant move. But the next morning at 8 o'clock, I'm in my office and the dean of the College of Extended Learning knocks on the door, comes in, and as was not her custom, she closed the door behind her and sat down. She said, do you believe that divorced people go to hell? And I kind of knew what was coming. And she said, I've gotten two phone calls already this morning. <laughs> I said, oh, yeah. I said, well, here's what I was doing. And I explained to her what I was doing. I said, I just wanted them to wallow a little bit in this, you know. And she stood up and went to the door, opened it, and turned back and said to me, next time, don't have them wallow so long. And she left. But back to Mark chapter 4. <laughs> this is, I think, just about as difficult, if not more. Jesus tells parables so that the outsiders won't perceive, won't hear, won't understand, won't be forgiven. That's what he said. I'm visiting. I'm going to get on a plane about the time they sing the invitation song and be gone. So I don't want you to wallow too long. What do we do with this? After we've wallowed for a while, I want you to read the next verse. That is verse 13. And remember to whom he's speaking. He's speaking to the twelve and to the followers who begin this section with a question. A question that was, what does it mean? A question that was obviously motivated because they did not know what it meant. What does that mean? And then he says in verse 13... Do you understand this parable? <laughs> They've, he's just made them one of the outsiders. It's almost tongue-in-cheek. Do you understand the parable? No. How will you understand all the parables? And then he goes on to explain the parable. This parable, second observation, is all about hearing. Listen to this, he says in verse 3. He who has ears to hear, let him hear, verse 9. And then the explanation, hearing and hear in verse 12, hear in verse 15, hear in verse 16, hear in verse 18, and then in verse 20, and they hear the word and accept it and so on. This is all about hearing. And the very next parable that Jesus has, in, I mean that Mark has intentionally placed next to this parable begins or ends by saying, if any man has ears to hear, let him hear, verse 23. And that parable is about this, where Jesus says, nobody takes a light and hides it in the closet, puts it under a, you know, a bushel. No, you have a light so that people will see. And he concludes it by saying, nothing is hidden except to be revealed. 
Some parables function this way. A cause of offense. Jesus sticks his foot out and causes us who are walking along our merry way to trip. Not to get us down on the ground, but to get us down on the ground so that we'll get up, brush ourselves off, and go in a new direction. Some parables are a cause of offense. Like what? Well, like this. The heroes of some of these parables, who are they? Tax collectors. Samaritans. Absolutely. Half-breeds. I hate those people. Guess who passed by? Yeah, the Levite. The religious leaders passed by the guy on the other side. But who stops and help? And he elaborates on the help. But the Samaritan. Luke chapter 10 doesn't call him the good Samaritan. That would be way too offensive. We've called him the good Samaritan because a Samaritan does doesn't mean what a Samaritan meant to them. And what about the tax collectors? Tax collectors. I hate tax collectors. You know what a tax collector did to my grandma? She's wearing her, her old house dress with the big purple floral you know design on it. The tax collector took my grandma upside down, shook her until the last nickel came out of her dress. That's what they did, those cutthroats in league with the Romans. Oh, I hate tax collectors. Guess who's the hero of these parables sometimes? A tax collector. A cause of offense. What? To get them to shut down? No, no. Just to get them to fall down and then get up, brush yourself off, and go in a new direction. This is pretty harsh. All by itself, it's impossible. But given what Jesus says in verse 13, given the emphasis on hearing, given the parable that follows, I get it. It's a cause of offense. Not to crush us, but to get us up and going in a new direction. Kind of shake us up a little bit. Now, aren't you glad you came to Bible class? Because we're going to get shaken up in the sermon. And uh, now you'll kind of, you won't race for the door. You might be able to kind of sit through and see where this thing is going. Comments or questions? Is it possible for rich people to go to heaven? answer is yes, by the grace of God. All right. Other comments? All right. I'd like to, uh, that was just to prepare this. The second thing I'd like to do in our remaining 15 minutes is to take a look at one more uh, one more passage. And this, in a way, is to build on what we did over the, on, on Friday night and on Saturday morning. And that is to take a look at a particular text that we would call paradigmatic. That is, it's large. It's, cast, it's so large that it's casting a vision that others should look to. It's recognized by its own declaration, by its own size, uh, the heft that it carries in Scripture. Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Job. In rhetoric, we, uh, we like to emphasize five canons. The canon of invention, where the material comes from. The canon of arrangement, how it's put together. Style, the words that are chosen. Delivery and memory. This particular passage that we're looking at here in Job is an emphasis on arrangement. And it's, a, and it's an emphasis on style. 
The story in Job, as you well know, goes from a heavenly, I mean from an earthly scene, verses 1 to 4, where Job is described by the narrator in all this wonderful descriptive terms as being a very wealthy man. It's described by the number of sheep and the number of camels that he has and his oak of oxen and his donkeys and so on. There's no one quite like him. And then the scene moves, and this is so important, from an earthly scene being described up to a heavenly scene. And when the cameras go up to the heavenly scene, the only ones who are aware of what's being what's happening here, the dialogue that's going on, is not the characters down on the earth, Job, his wife, his three friends, others, but the Lord, the accuser, and you and me. And when that conversation takes place up in the heavenly realm, the the, 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 the Lord says to the accuser, from where have you come? And the accuser, some versions say, Satan, says, from roaming about on the earth and walking about on it. And the Lord said to the accuser, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And the accuser says, Job fears God for nothing. You've put a hedge. You see that word there in verse 10? It's an important word. He says, you've, the reason that Job is so good is that you've put a hedge about him. You protect him. Remove that hedge, and he will curse you to your face. The cameras now go back down to the earthly scene. And what happens is one of the most beautiful beautifully described, horrific scenes ever written. It's like an orchestra playing one of, the, one of the majestic songs in a minor key. It says that when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, that a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding and the Sabaeans attacked and took them and they slew the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. If I had a whiteboard 12 times the size of this whiteboard, I would write this down, but the detail's too much. I might as well leave it in the pages of Scripture. And while he was still speaking... And that phrase is repeated three times. And while he was still speaking, tying that story to the next one, another came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned the sheep and servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, every one of these reports ends, and I alone have escaped to tell you, and I alone have escaped to tell you, and I alone have escaped to tell you, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And the second and the third and the fourth begin, and while he was still speaking, and while he was still speaking, and while he was still speaking. And the first one is a, a human marauder band, the Sabaeans. And the second one is some natural act, fire. The third one is the Chaldeans, and the fourth one is a great wind. It's like A, B, A, B. And I alone have escaped to tell you, and I alone have escaped to tell you, and the last one is the worst one of them all. It says, 
While he was still speaking, another came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating, drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they've all died. And I alone have escaped to tell you the finality of it. If I could speak with multiple voices, and I alone have escaped to tell you, and I, I alone have escaped to tell you, and while he was still speaking, and while he was still speaking, in the A, B, A, B, you would just see it come alive. And the verse, the next verse says, and you know this so well, and Job arose, and he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. I came to this world with nothing. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then the narrator, who very seldom has a, has a comment, he makes a comment here in verse 22. He says, in all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. And now the cameras go back up to the heavenly scene. That was tough to take. But now it moves on. And in... Verse 1 of chapter 2, it's a reconvening of the accuser and the Lord. And it's repeating the same stuff as before, only there's slight variation. Pay attention to where, it, where the variation comes. Again, the day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser came among them to present himself. And the Lord said to Satan, if you can, Where have you come from? From wandering about on the earth and walking about on it. Precisely what happened earlier. And the Lord said, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. The exact script from chapter 1. And then this new line. A new line. So we pay attention. And the Lord says, And he still holds fast to his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. That was new. And then the accuser says, Of course, skin for skin. All that a man has, he'll give for his life. But you put forth your hand now and touch him in his flesh. He'll curse you to your face. The first time, the Lord said, you can do what you want, but don't touch him. This time, he says, you can touch him, but you can't kill him. And then what happens next? And you know this. The cameras go back down, and Job is inflicted with boils. From the top of his head to the bottom of his foot, boils breaking out everywhere. He's so in such pain, he takes broken pieces of pottery and begins to scrape himself for relief. And then his wife approaches. And if we were going to do this in a play, and you wanted to be part of the play, but you've never been in a, in a theater production before, but you want to try your hand at it, you want something, some lines that you get, get your hands around, get your mind around quickly, you'd want to be Job's wife. Because she has a couple of, a line, one line really, and her line has already been rehearsed earlier in the play. She repeats what she's not heard because she's been down here on earth and all that conversation was going on up there. And she says in verse 9, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? God's line in verse 3 was, He still holds fast to his integrity. Now she turns it. And makes it into a question. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? But the next line's worse. This was the one that was twice in the mouth of the accuser. Curse God and die. The accuser said, he will curse you to your face. And she says, go ahead, curse him, and he will die. 
I want to get up close to her and touch her scalp because I believe there might be horns. <laughs> Ooh. I'm being facetious about the horns. But you kind of catch my drift. But he rebukes her in verse 10. He says, you speak like a foolish woman. Shall we accept the good and not adversity? And then our narrator, our narrator has another line. He says, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Hmm. The friends arrive. They see him from a distance and they weep because of his condition. And they don't say a word for seven days. But then in verse 1, something very troubling happens. I won't enact this because it would be so uncomfortable for us to hear this. It would be uncomfortable for me to say this. It would be very uncomfortable for you to hear this. But in verse 1, the narrator who has gone had three lines for us. In all of this, Job did not sin. In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. And then in verse 3, Job opens his mouth. He opened his mouth, I'm quoting now, and he cursed the day of his birth. I'll only put the idea in your mind. How would a person curse the day of his birth? What would be the words that a person would use to curse the day of his birth? How do you say this? If we were in a tavern or a bar, a quick response. That's exactly what you'd say. If we were in the privacy of your home, maybe you would say it. If we were on a street, maybe you would say it. But we're in a church building, and you don't want to say it. And I don't want you to say it. But you know what you would say, and that's what he does. That's offensive to me, you say. I'm offended by that. Fine. Then don't read the rest of chapter 3. Because in the rest of chapter 3, Job's language is very strong and the imagery is almost more than you can bear he says i wish i wouldn't have survived my birth i wish when i was born they would have taken a knife and slit my throat i wish when my mother was conceiving or when my mother was delivering me they would have taken her knees and tied them together with a rope so that i wouldn't have been born that's tougher to hear but what's most tough is what you see in verse 23. It's just a word that he uses. It's not the word that we imagined in verse 1. It's a word that we've already heard. It's the word back when the accuser first opens his mouth and he says, I'll tell you why he's so good. I'll tell you why. It's because you've got a hedge built around him. Remove that hedge and he'll curse you to your face. And in verse 23, Job, who had not heard the accuser say this, says... You've got a hedge around me. Well, now, <laughs> what do we make of that? What do we say to that? I'm uncomfortable with this. I want to send Job to a counselor. <laughs> I think he needs to see somebody. And that's precisely what his friends say beginning in chapter 4. Eliphaz is the first to speak. He says, you who have given out all this advice and told all this stuff, why don't you listen to us? He says, well, what I've seen, Eliphaz says, those who are suffering have caused the suffering. Show me a poor man on the street asking for food, and I'll show you a man who was in trouble. That's right. Sin somehow. That's Eliphaz. And Joab says, or Job says, that's not what happened. 
And on the conversation goes until finally, near the end of the book, God finally appears. And in he appears, God asks Job a series of questions. A bunch of questions that begin, do you know how? Do you know where I keep the snow when it's not snowing? Do you know how the mountain lions give birth up there in the forest? Do you know? Do you know? Do you know? And every one of them, Job answers, I don't know. 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 And now we go back to the first part of Job and we remember all those conversations that took place in the heavenly realm, Job didn't hear and he never found out about. It was just the Lord, the accuser, and you and me. And so tough times hit. Difficult times hit. I'll close with a little story. Maybe it'll take two minutes beyond our official closing time. 10.32. Several years ago, actually it was 2003, I was invited to deliver what I thought was a very distinguished public lecture. I was so honored. I thought I'd hit the big time, the William Green Lectures at Pepperdine University. I would be honored. And all these distinguished people had delivered these addresses before. And I set in preparation to prepare a full year for this address. I spent countless hours preparing. And what I was preparing was a lecture from the book of Job. When I had neared completion, in fact, I'd completed my preparations, and it was about three weeks out, the one who had invited me calls back and says, do you have a title for it? And I gave him the title. He says, oh, that won't work. That's too complicated. I'm thinking I'm going to be talking to professors and academics. He says, oh, that's way too complicated. He says, you do know who you're talking to, don't you? I said, I think I do. And he says, this is a chapel service. A chapel service? I speak at chapel all the time. I don't take a year to prepare for a chapel service. Oh, yeah, these are just students who are going to get extra credit if they actually come and listen, or if they actually come. They may not be listening. What's your title? I thought, what a waste. I wasted a whole year preparing for this talk out of Job. Ah! I gave it, and I gave it, delivered the message. And then about two months later, on February 4th, 2004, It was 10.30 at night. We didn't have cell phones, but I heard the phone ring from the kitchen. I couldn't usually hear it from our bedroom, but I got up, and by the time I got to the phone, the message had come on. We have three sons. The middle son is named Luke. And what I heard was a woman who identified her as a Miss Anderson who worked for the Oxford Volunteer Fire Department, and that Luke had been in a head-on collision, and he was being life-flighted to a hospital. I pick up the phone, and she's telling me in more detail. She says, his vital signs look good, Mr. Fleer. Please take your time getting to the hospital. All the way there, six surgeries. The first thing I'm told is his head is fine. This is good, Mr. Fleer. His head is fine. Six surgeries, I'm asking myself, why? He gets, he gets better. He's in recovery. He's getting better. 
He's actually now out driving again. That was February. Now it's August, the same year. And in an unbelievable, remarkable situation, on a Wednesday night as he was coming home from church, he's involved in yet another collision. Again, not his fault. It was a bam, 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 bam. He calls from his cell phone to the house, and when I get to the scene of the accident, he's being lifted onto a gurney, being placed in an ambulance and heading to the hospital. We go to the hospital. He's off for x-rays. A police officer comes and delivers the ticket. The other drivers weren't injured to get to the hospital. They gathered together and discerned that our son Luke was at fault. He was the fourth of a five-car five car pileup, but they discerned that it was Luke's fault. The police officer came and gave the ticket. Luke's getting his x-rays. And at that point, I picked up my keys as I'm waiting with my wife in the waiting room, and I threw them across the room. They hit the wall, and I said, I give up. I quit. If this is what it's like, I give up. To which my wife said, that's fine. If everything you believe doesn't mean anything to you, that's fine. But don't let the kids hear you. So I went up, I got my keys, I put them back in the pocket, and I sat down and I thought. It dawned on me, it took me months, but it dawned on me. All that preparation for this speech was in preparation for me to begin to live into the world that is envisioned in Job. When we don't know why things are happening to us, we, have, we are not privy to the conversations. We're not up there in the heavenly realm overhearing the Lord and the accuser talk. But that we trust. That not only do we not know that, there's a lot of other things that we don't know. But Lord Job's first line becomes our line. And that is, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will return the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I didn't move from Job chapter 1 to Job chapter 2 to Job chapter 3, naturally. I moved in reverse. This is the world that God envisions for us. This is the world that he invites us in to live. I've gone four or five minutes over with. We'll have one last installment. This isn't it. We'll have one last installment. Thanks, thanks for listening. And uh, appreciate, though our dialogue has not been a verbal one, I can kind of tell by your eyes and your eyebrows and the gleam there that this is a dialogue that's been going on verbal and nonverbal. And for that, I appreciate it. <laughs>